0: personality, their positions, their popularity, their influence, their possessions, and desire what they have more than what we have been given. Especially this can happen in the church, and it creates divisions when we allow comparison, jealousy, and bitterness to take root in our hearts. So that's what we are going to consider today as we look at the birth of twins, appropriate for Father's Day, that we are going to be talking about Isaac becoming a father. Um, And in this In this chapter as we're not only transitioning from the life of Abraham to the life mostly looking at Jacob, um, we're also transitioning from looking at what does it mean to live a life of faith, to be on this journey of faith, and now we're going to be looking at what does it look like to receive the blessing of God, and how do we interact with the blessing of God, what is the right way to obtain God's blessing, and even what is God's blessing. So you'll, you'll notice that transition in the next couple of weeks as we talk about Jacob. Jacob is a man obsessed with receiving God's blessing and getting blessing wherever he can, however he can. And we'll consider how should we live our lives in light of that. Uh, but before we get to Jacob, uh, let's start at the beginning of chapter 25 and see this transition and how we've moved from the story of Abraham on to Isaac and then Jacob. Starting in verse 1 of chapter 25, if you would read along with me. Abraham took another wife. This is after Sarah has died. And his wife's name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. Jokshan fathered Sheba and Dedan. And the sons of Dedan were Asherim, Letushim, and Leumim. The sons of Midian were Ephah, Ephur, Hanak, Abida, and Edlah. All of these were children of Keturah. Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But to the sons of his concubines, Abraham gave gifts. And while he was still living, he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the east country. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life. One hundred and seventy-five years. Abraham breathed his last and died. In good old age, an old man full of years, and was gathered to his people. Isaac and Ishmael, his sons, buried him in the cave of Machpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, Zohar, the Hittite, east of Mamre, the field that Abraham purchased from the Hittites, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. After the death of Abraham, God blessed Isaac, his son, and Isaac settled in, Be- in beer le These are the generations of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar, the I- Egyptian, Sarah's servant, bore to Abraham. These are the names of the sons of Ishmael, named in the order of their birth. Neboith, the firstborn of Ishmael, and Kedar, Adbeel, Midsham, Mishma, Duma, Masa, Hadad, Tima, Jeter, Nafish, and Kedema. These are the sons of Ishmael, and these are their names by their villages and their encampments, twelve princes, according to their tribes. These are the years of Ishmael, one hundred and thirty seven years. And he breathed his last and died. Was gathered to his people, and they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite of Egypt in the direction of Assyria. He settled over against all of his kinsmen. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and we'll pick up from there in a little bit. So, a lot of really fun names again. Um, As we're going through these, though, it's not just about the names, but what's happening within the story. Um, You'll recognize Abraham has a lot more sons. We don't talk a lot about all of these names. I can't even remember one of them without looking at them. They're not well known. His wife, Keturah, is not spoken of much. Um, But they play a role in Abraham's later life. And as he has these six sons, he has a decision to make. How is he going to divide up his wealth? Is he going to split it evenly? Is he going to give a little bit more to Isaac? But it says that he gives everything that he has to Isaac... Because Isaac is the one that God has promised that through Isaac there will be a multitude of people that will come. And through Isaac will all nations in the earth be blessed. And so Abraham gives everything to Isaac save for a few gifts that he gives to his sons and then he sends his sons away. He sends them back to the east to live where Abraham was born because Abraham doesn't want anybody else posing an imposition or getting in the way of Isaac living in the land that God has promised to Isaac. And so again, Abraham is putting his affairs into order, setting it up so that Isaac will have an easier route obeying and having faith in God as he lives. Um, And then, um, after he dies, which if you remember back when we went through the earlier genealogies, it would say there was so-and-so, they lived so many years and had sons, and they lived so many more years, and then they died. And we see that again with Abraham and Ishmael. They live, we get a long picture of what happens in Abraham's life, and then he dies. A man of faith, a righteous man, but yet the curse of sin is still present. There is still death. And when he dies, he is buried in the small plot of land that is the only land that he owns with his wife, Sarah. At the end of his life, all that he has that he can see of this multitude of people that are going to dwell in this vast amount of land, is he has a son, Isaac. And as we'll find out, he has two grandsons that are 15 years old when he dies. And then he has a small plot of land that's burial ground. Yet he still believes that God is going to fulfill this promise. He still dies a man of faith. Then we get to the generations of Ishmael. This is what the author of Genesis does as he kind of breaks down how things go in the family lines is he will cover the death of the father and then if there are two sons, they will talk real briefly about the one son that's not the chosen one, the favored one and cover the lineage and then go on and talk about the other son. So this is Ishmael's little brief introduction. If you remember, Ishmael was promised that he would be blessed, that he would be the father of a multitude of nations. And God fulfills his promise to Ishmael as he has 12 sons that become 12 princes. Even though Ishmael is not the promised one, he still receives some of Abraham's blessings. And so his people dwell and they move to the land that's the Arabian Peninsula. Um, and there's some belief amongst um, Muslims that uh, Muhammad comes from the line of Ishmael. So that is where Ishmael's line go. And we don't see them again in the story of Genesis. Um, Ishmael shows up to bury his father and then goes off the scene. But then we get to the generations of Isaac. Which you'll see this, if you remember, our little marker throughout Genesis when we're transitioning from one to another. In Hebrew, it's the word Toledot, the generations. And it'll say, these are the generations of. And you know, now we're moving into talking about somebody else. So as it gets into these are the generations of Isaac in verse 19... We begin to now look in full at Isaac's life. And the first thing that we see is that much like his father, Isaac does not have sons right away. He doesn't have children. This is, again, a man that's supposed to be fathering a multitude of nations. But yet, his wife is barren and can't conceive. Uh, We'll pick up, we'll read, starting in verse 19. And then look at... This miracle that happens in the life of Isaac. So these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac. And when Isaac was 40 years old, he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, the sister of Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So again, this is very familiar. We'll see patterns throughout the book of Genesis. Again, the promise does not seem to be coming true. Rebecca is barren. She can't have children. And Isaac, the only thing that it says that he does is he goes to God and prays. Unlike Abraham, who tries to find all of these ways around to solve this problem, Isaac has learned what Abraham has taught him in his latter years, that a life of faith... It's a life where you depend on God and that God is the only one that can answer the prayers that you have. And so Isaac prays. That's his response. And when we encounter times in life like this, um, that should be our first response. When we recognize there's nowhere that we can go, nothing that we can do, and really even before we get to that point. Sometimes we have to get to the point where we're like, oh, there's nothing else I can do, and then we go to God. But even before that point, before we try all of our own tricks and schemes, we need to go to God in prayer. Even when it feels like God's not coming through like we expect. Isaac was expecting to have children. He was expecting to have a multitude. This was promised to him. Even Rebecca, when she left her father's land, it was said, May you be, may thousands and 10,000 come from you. We find out later, it's 20 years. They're married for 20 years without children. Isaac gets married when he is 40 and doesn't have children until he's 60 years old. As we're reading through, it can sometimes feel like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, they couldn't get pregnant and so he prayed and then they got pregnant and like that, it happened right away. But imagine 20 years, imagine being married for 20 years and desiring to have children and believing that God has promised you children for 20 years, you don't see it. And for 20 years, you pray and you ask God and you don't see it. Isaac is a man of faith, that he continues to pray. And finally, after 20 years of waiting, God blesses and opens Rebecca's womb, and she gets pregnant. Continuing then in verse 22, the children struggle together within her. And she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? And so she went to inquire, of the Lord, as she is pregnant, she can tell something is not right inside. There's something going on, and these children that are within her are struggling, almost wrestling within each other, within her, against each other. And she wants to know what is happening, and she doesn't have any answers. She can't go to an ultrasound and be like, oh, this is what's happening on the inside, and get a clear picture. She has to go to the Lord. And following the example of her husband... When she wants to know, why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? She goes in prayer to the Lord. And as she inquires, um, the Lord says to her, two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you will be divided. One will be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. She prays and God reveals what only God could reveal. There's no way for her to understand what is happening inside of her, that there are two nations almost at war from the moment of conception inside of her. So thus far we've seen the transition and now we are seeing there's a division. There's two nations divided even though they're together within her. Um, And we learn a few things about these two. The first thing that we see is is that one will be stronger and then one will be weaker. Now, as we see this, we expect, okay, the older one will be the stronger one and the younger one is going to be the weaker. That's typically the way it worked. The older one was the one that got the birthright, that held the blessing, that the line would have gone through and that would have been the blessed one. And the younger one just kind of fades out of the picture. But the next line that the Lord tells her is that the older will serve the younger. And so, in fact, it's the younger one that will be the stronger. And the older one will be the weaker. And this is not just talking about physical strength. As we get into seeing the physical characteristics of these two nations, these two men, we'll see that the older one maybe has more of the characteristics of what we'd consider to be a manly man. He would be a great person to bring up on Father's Day and say, look at this man, he's a hunter, he's you know, a wild man, he goes out, whereas the other one is not so much of what we would consider to be a manly man. He stayed at home. Um, yeah, there's, there's not a lot that we would say, oh, that's the stronger man, but yet the younger one shows himself to be stronger in faith in obedience, and also stronger when it comes to mental games and cunning and some of the more negative connotations of the ways that he schemes and lies to get what he wants. In verse 24, when her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and they called his name Esau. So we have our older brother, the one that comes out first. They name him Esau because he is red and hairy. The name Esau kind of playing off of the Hebrew words for hairy and red. Um, I guess you, what you see, you're like, that's the name that comes to mind. It's going to be Esau. Um, <laughs> and coming out like a hairy cloak. I can just picture it a little bit. and it's, it's, it's a little bit like weird. It's like, okay, that, that's Esau. He's clearly going to be a different kind of a guy. Like He's got his path laid out before him. But then in verse 26, right on the back end, as soon as Esau comes out, afterwards his brother comes out with his hand holding Esau's heel. His name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. So the next one that we get is Jacob. And his name means heel grabber. Um, this is sort of the, the pun on his name is the one that grabs a heel. It also means the Lord protects. Um, but the pun on his name, the heel grabber, is in Hebrew sort of the um, idiom for what you would say to go behind someone's back. So if you're going to say, hey, this person's sneaking behind their back, you'd say, oh, that man grabbed their heel. You went behind them and pulled their legs out from underneath them. This is somebody almost to stab in the back um, is the pun on his name, um, which begins to, again, give us a little picture of what his life is going to be like. Then in verse 27, as the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So the weaker, older Esau, who is red and hairy, was a skillful hunter and a man of the field. This is a man's man. He would go out and hunt to bring in the crop, and his dad loved him because he loved eating that game. He loved the taste, and he loved the meat, and he loved his son, because of the skill and the abilities of his son that connected and meshed with him. On the other hand, we have Jacob, who is quiet, which could also probably more appropriately be translated civilized. Esau is the wild, red, and hairy man that's out there and hunting, and Jacob is the civilized man. He was the one that dwells in the tents and stays with his mother and helps his mother out. And so his mother... Loves him. These two men are drastically different. If we compare the two, they're almost polar opposites, each having their own preferences and each parent having their own preferences of which one they like. Um, As they're together in a family, I also want to talk about what it looks like for us when we have differences within our family and specifically the family of our church, the body of Christ. Um, In the New Testament, we're called brothers and sisters in Christ. And a lot of times I could pull any two of you up here if there were volunteers and we could say, this person is this way and this person is this way and point out all the differences and the distinctions that separate us. Because we are all different, intentionally different, God made us different with different plans, different purposes for us and for our lives. And, and these two men are examples of us, of the different ways that we have gifts and abilities. Some of these are just inherent. The way we were born, the way that we are, like Esau being red and hairy. That's just the way he was, the way he was born. In some of us, we are born just naturally with certain gifts or abilities. I was born with a natural ability to reach things on high shelves. Um, That is a skill that just the Lord gave me um, and did not give to others around me. Um, But there are also other things that just come naturally in ability uh, natural to us, like personalities and, and preferences. There's some people that are just naturally bent towards being in front of people and speaking and holding a captive audience, and other people that are really good at being behind the scenes and running the PowerPoint and making sure that the sound doesn't get messed up. And they are gifted in their abilities to do things that often go unnoticed. There's also things that are learned. Like Esau says that he's a skillful hunter, and there are certain things that we learn as we go throughout our lives. There's some of you here that have learned skills like music or knowledge in construction or technology or cooking or different areas of being able to provide help, whether it's medically, that these are things that you've been trained in and you've gained skill. Like Esau, he didn't just come out of the womb natural hunter, but he developed his skill to the point where they could say he was skillful. And like that, in the church, we have different skills, different abilities that we have developed that God has brought into our paths and allowed us to cultivate. And then there are some things that are just gifts from God. 1 Corinthians 12, 14 says, There's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are a variety of services, but the same Lord. That as the body of Christ, as Christians together, God has given us each different gifts, different abilities. He's appointed some as teachers, some as evangelists. And he's given some the gift of helps and the gifts of administration. There's different gifts and different things that the Lord has supernaturally given to each and every one of us. So that none of us are the same. And this is why Paul describes us as a body of Christ. Each member having its own part and its own function. The thumb being drastically different than the ear. The thumb has a purpose. And can accomplish what an ear cannot. You cannot pick things up with your ear. You can also not hear things with your thumb. Um, and that's how it is in the church. I know some of you are trying to, like, can I hear? No, you can't hear things with your thumb. And some of you are going to go home and try to pick things up with your ear. Uh, just to prove that you can do it. But <laughs> we're different, designed different for a different purpose and a different plan. Just like these two men are different, and there's a division from the moment that they are born. These two are drastically different people. So how do we respond to these differences? And that's what we're going to look at the rest of the time. It's one thing to recognize that we have differences, but the way that we respond shows where our heart is. In verse 28, the first thing we see is we see the response of Isaac and Rebecca. Any good parenting book will tell you don't have favorites. Um, and definitely don't make your favorites, you know, explicitly outwardly known to your children. Um, that will do nothing but breed contempt amongst your children. But yet, Isaac clearly has a preference towards Esau. This is his favorite son, and Rebekah loves Jacob. Our gifts and abilities can make us valued or neglected by certain people. Um, in certain situations and different environments... You may step into one environment in a workplace where your skills and ability are highly valued and then go to another place where people don't see any value to what you have to offer at all. And as things shift, you'll go to different places and sometimes you might come to church and feel like your gift is highly valued and people really appreciate what you have to offer or maybe you might come into church and feel like your gift is neglected and you feel like the child that's not loved because... Your gift doesn't bring praise and applause. The temptation that happens when we begin to see these differences is to start to compare. And that is the first step that we make that is extremely dangerous. When we begin to compare ourselves to one another, um, not to say that we're going to compare and say, oh, this person's really good at this, so I'm going to put them in a position to do well, but to say, man, Tim has this ability that I just... I can't be around you know, blood. I can't stand it. It makes me queasy. Like, but Tim is just so much better than me. I, c- I couldn't ever do that. And the way that he travels around the world and helps all these people is like, I just, I, I fail to compare. That type of comparison, when we begin to say, how do I measure up against this person? It never ends well. Because there's only two results. If you compare yourself to someone else, either you're going to say, wow, I am so much better than that person. Like, I have all these gifts and abilities and all these things that I can do, and they're just not there. And boy, look at how great I am. And immediately we step into the sin of pride. But the other danger is we can compare ourselves to others and say, wow, I really don't measure up to this person. I'm garbage compared to them. And we begin to become distressed and distraught and to despise who God made us to be, and we want to try to be like them. There's a quote that's originally attributed to Teddy Roosevelt um, that says, comparison is the thief of joy. And the moment that we begin to compare ourselves to others, we lose our joy. We lose our joy in who God made us to be, either because we become conceited at how much better we are than other people, or because we feel like we just don't measure up. And the moment that our differences begin to start to divide us is the moment that we compare ourselves to one another. And unfortunately for these twins... The comparison started with their parents, and their parents set an example for them, showing favoritism and preferring one over the other. Now, as the children grow up and get older, we have the first instance of them interacting with one another in verse 29. It happened one day when Jacob was cooking stew. Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore his name was called Edom. Just to stop there and explain why his name was called Edom. In the Hebrew, um, he actually says, Let me eat some of that red stuff, that red red. Whatever it is that he wants, he just sees it as red, and so he wants it, and so he's called Edom, which means red. Um, so throughout the rest of the Bible, whenever you see the nation Edom, that's Esau and his offspring. That's how he gets that nickname. Um, probably because of his red hair as well Um, but there's just this connection of red with Esau so Esau being exhausted comes in and asks Jacob to eat some of that red stuff and Jacob says sell me your birthright now Esau said I am about to die what use is a birthright to me Jacob said swear to me now and so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So this little interaction, we see each of these men in their natural habitats, Jacob at home cooking, and Esau coming in from an exhausting hunt. And as he comes in, the question of birthright gets raised. The birthright was the right to obtain a double portion of the inheritance. So when Isaac would pass away, he would give an inheritance to his sons, but the older one would get two-thirds, while the younger one would just get one-third. Esau, being so exhausted, and feeling like he's about to die, recognizes that if he's dead, there's no use of this inheritance to him, so he might as well sell it in order to get some of that red stuff, some lentil stew. Now, if you remember back to the promise that God gave Rebecca when she was pregnant, he already foretold that the older would serve the younger. It's already been promised to Jacob that he would rule over his brother. But yeah, that's not good enough for Jacob. Jacob wants what he doesn't have. And Esau is all too willing to give it up. So we have two different people and two different reactions to the blessing. First off, Esau doesn't appreciate what he's been given. He has the right to a double portion of the inheritance, and this wasn't just a small thing. If you remember, Abraham had a vast amount of herds and flocks and was considered extremely wealthy, and he gave everything that he had to Isaac, his son. So now Isaac has all of this servants and animals and flocks and herds and a great amount of possession. This is what Esau would have received two-thirds of when Isaac passed. But he's willing to give that all up. He doesn't have a high value on what he's been given. He doesn't see his position as firstborn as anything of significance when it compares to having a bowl of soup. Esau's more interested in getting what he wants, when he wants it, how he wants it, than keeping what's already been given to him. He's like the dog that is up on the bridge looking over and he looks down and sees a bowl of red soup and opens his mouth to lose the birthright in order to get some of that red soup. In the end, it says that he actually despises his birthright. Which today, this would be the equivalent if you consider somebody that's maybe born into a family that owns a business, and it is their right to take over that business when they grow up, but as a child they decide, I want nothing to do with that. And so they despise the right that comes with being able to take over that business or that fortune and to be able to build that wealth, and they go off and decide they're just going to travel the world and be on their own and, and separate themselves from their parents. Uh, whether that's, you know inheriting a family business or even the legacy of a well-known father or mother, there's plenty of examples of well-respected Christian men whose children have turned aside and neglected the legacy of their father. In order to pursue their own desires, their own wants, they despise what has been given to them. In many of the same ways, we can uh, we can despise and not appreciate what we've been given. Um, in In every realm of life, there are certain jobs, positions, qualities that are valuable that we view as successful, Um, and then there's other ones that are viewed as not as valuable. And often, when we fit into a place that's considered not as valuable, it can become really easy to despise our position and to leave it behind to pursue something else. I kind of think of, in football, there's a group of 11 men on the offensive side of the field. And a lot of times, if you follow the team, you can name you know, the running back, the wide receiver, the quarterback. But not many people can name the offensive linemen. No one's going around and buying the jersey of the offensive lineman. Um, they're just not popular. They have an extremely important role to play, but they're not the one that everyone's celebrating or you know wanting to find out their opinion after a win and interviewing. They often live quiet lives. And many times in the church, there's people like that. That they don't receive a lot of attention. They don't receive a lot of applause and acclaim. But yet without them, the church wouldn't be the same. It would be a lot more difficult to get things done. There's plenty of people in our church that we don't recognize or we don't see up front on a weekly basis, but yet they are there behind the scenes every week doing a great job. The people that clean, the people that print the bulletins, the people that post stuff and get the announcements out to you, and all the people that are working behind the scenes on VBS and things like that. Without them, we wouldn't be able to pull off what we do. And they're extremely valuable. And a lot of times in the church, we want to give praise to those that have been given the gifts of music or speaking, those that are preachers and teachers. But yet, there's the gifts that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-eight of helps and administration. In our culture, no one's really clamoring for the spiritual gift of helps. Um, it's just not popular. But yet, it's a gift that God gives, and it's a gift that is immensely needed within the church. And the temptation might be whether it is one of these gifts or maybe another gift that you have that you just don't see it as valuable or you would prefer to have something else. And the temptation is to be like Esau, despise your gift and to give it up, chasing after something else. To not use it because you want to be in a different position. You want to receive what somebody else has. And so you give up and you neglect what God has given you in order to chase after what you want instead. When this happens, it becomes destructive within the church. When we begin to chase after others' gifts and others' abilities, it creates an internal competition. Like, oh, we'll do another sports analogy because it's Father's Day. Uh, like, two players on a basketball team that are both going for the award of MVP of the league, and they begin to create an internal competition to see who can score the most points, and so they stop passing to one another, and they stop you know, helping one another to win as a team, and the the individual competition within the team creates a divisiveness that separates and fractures the team, that's what can happen in the church when we begin to compete, when we begin to compare, when we begin to try and take what others have. When we despise what we've been given, we can also be like Jacob then. And maybe we don't despise what we have, but we just want more. It doesn't say that Jacob despises his birth position of being the one that's to rule over his brother. But yet he wants what he doesn't have. He wants that double portion of the inheritance that wasn't promised to him. He's given a superior position in God's promise, but he wasn't given the superior amount of possessions. And so he sees this opportunity. There's Esau. He's weak. He's vulnerable. This is his chance to take advantage when we compare ourselves to others it leads us to wanting what they have several years ago I was working with the youth ministry and um, I was working in a specific school district and I had been working with students in that school and another ministry came into town that was doing um, some special meetings and some revival meetings and they had managed to get a meeting in front of the student body of the school and so I went and approached the leader and said, hey, I've been working in the school for a little while. Could I join you for that meeting and just be there since I know the students there? And the response that I got was, I think you'd be most useful if you stayed back and prayed. Which is, you know, the Christian way of saying no. Um, <laughs> no, we don't want you there. Um, at least that's how I took it and that's how it felt. And as I received that, the immediate temptation was to look at everybody else that received an invitation to go. Thought, well, why were they? they don't even work in this school. They don't even know anybody there. Why did they get to go, and why am I stuck here being asked to pray? I wanted what I didn't have, and it led to bitterness. It led to bitterness against this leader and against other people, and it took for me a little while to recognize what was happening in my heart, that I wanted what they had. And it created division where I didn't want to talk to this guy anymore. I didn't view, I didn't respect him, I didn't see his ministry even as anything of value for a while. Until the Lord had to work on my heart and recognize that because of my own comparison, because of the way that I was interacting, I was creating division within the body of Christ. Um, As a church, we have different functions. There's times when you might be invited to that position that you've been wanted, and there's times Where you might be asked to stay behind. And as I think about it, yes, the prayer was extremely important. And I I should have been honored that he asked me to pray for them as they went, but I didn't have the right response, I'll just say that. (laughs) Paul says that we're like a body. And oftentimes when we desire what somebody else has, we leave behind our own function. Especially when there's other people like Isaacs and Rebecca's around us telling us what's valuable and not valuable telling us that more influence, more popularity, more acceptance, more accolades, more attention is what you need. And so we despise what we've been given and we go after it wherever we can find it. So in order for our church, our family, the family of Christ to function together As God designed, we need everybody working the ways that God has designed. God has created each and every one of us here with specific gifts and abilities in order to support his body, to support one another, to come along as a body, each person doing what God has called them to do. And when we start comparing and competing, we become divided and we lose our focus and we can lose our mission. It becomes more about ascending the ladder of church politics than it does about serving each other and serving the community. So, three things that I'm going to encourage you guys to do in light of this that will help us as a body stay united. The first one is to cut off the comparison. That we do not compare with one another and try to see who is more valuable or who is more highly esteemed. And when the temptation comes to compare, that we respond by thanking God for the gifts of others. That rather than comparing in a comp- competitive way, we see the gifts that others have that God has given them and we thank God for those. And third, that we thank God for the gifts that he's given us. That we recognize that even though we might desire what somebody else has or what someone else has been given, that God has placed us in a unique place to serve in a unique way. And that he has a plan and a purpose for us. And for that, we should thank him. So cut off the comparison. Thank God for the gifts of others. And thank God for the gifts that he has given us. And through this, we can work together as the body of Christ without comparing and competing against one another and creating division.